Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. A lot to talk about this morning, and it's been in the news. These wet markets in Asia where the SARS viruses, both of them, one a couple of years ago, sudden acute respiratory syndrome. That's what causes COVID-19. There's one that began a couple of years ago. Luckily, just pure luck, petered itself out. This one turned into a pandemic, as you all know, causing COVID-19. The Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, began at a similar market in the Middle East. What is with these places? What are they? And why do they need to go away? Moreover, we have our versions of these in Illinois. So our state director of the Humane Society of the United States, Mark Ayers, will join us to talk about that. And I want you, when we're ready and when you feel comfortable, to go back to the zoos. We have two great zoos here in Chicago. There's the Milwaukee Zoo. I'll talk about why I think that's really important. And also how eels at an aquarium in Japan are sticking their necks out for us. Dr. Ann Beal is the author of Heroic, Helpful and Caring Cats, Felines Who Make a Difference. And, you know, Dr. Beal, I know you were friends and... You were, you are still, and you were a researcher who wrote about research things. And then you got turned on by cats somewhere along the way, and you've been writing book after book having to do with cats. What, what, what prompted you to do this particular book, which essentially says, here's what cats can do? You know, I think I was motivated because a lot of people have the stereotype that cats are aloof and disconnected and they're not really, you know, the kinds of creatures who do amazing things for human beings. And I went and did research on this very topic and found that it was exactly the opposite. The cats are as connected to us as dogs. The cats are as emotionally uh, protective and as emotionally connected as other creatures, including the, the same exact attachment uh, levels that humans have to one another. So very, very motivated to kind of understand that and to really dispel some stereotypes about cats, that they just sort of don't care and that, you know, as they say, dogs have masters and cats have staff. Well, not really. All right. So, scientist lady, do our cats, I'm asking you to anthropomorphize here, or maybe it's not anthropomorphizing, do cats really love us? I think cats really do. I think that uh, if you have a cat, and I know you've had uh, a few cats, I think that they are a little bit more subtle in their approach to relationships, and I think they are not as expressive as dogs are, and they're not as sort of obvious. But I think if you spend enough time with a cat, you know that it does care about you and that it wants to spend time with you and that it, it has some very strong connection to you, and you can see that when you get sick. And the cat doesn't want to leave your side. Yeah, uh, You can see that when you go through very difficult emotional times. And cats, you know, we have many examples in the book of cats who help people through very difficult emotional times and even transform them personally. So, yes, I think cats have a huge impact. So you do have many examples in the book. Give us a couple. Well, I think there are some great ones. Uh, there are good examples of therapy cats in here and cats that are making a difference in the lives of uh, veterans and uh, in assisted living homes, cats that help uh, children with special needs. Uh, there's lots of examples of uh, cats who are going to hospitals and making a difference in, uh, you know, intensive care units even. 
but there are other examples that are closer to home. I have an example of a cat who a man believed was a huge part of his healing process. I have another cat who uh, basically helped a child make a transition from homeschooling to regular schooling and who helped her combat her anxiety and even taught her how to socialize with other kids. So some pretty amazing cats in this book, Steve. So uh, I have a friend, Dr. Marty Becker, who wrote a book, great book called The Healing Power of Pets. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Becker would be the first to say, now he wrote that book uh, in 2001. I remember because it came out, imagine trying to promote a book as 9-11 is happening. That's about when it came out. Yeah. But it was a a terrific book. And he would be the first to say that 80% of the research we have in this book is dog Centric. It could be called the healing power of dogs and, on rare occasion, cats. Do you mm. think? Do you think if you had written that book today, in 2020, it would be more level, or do you think there's still far more research regarding dogs and the human-animal bond when compared to cats? I think that it's easy to write about dogs, and they're very easy to discuss, and people have a certain heart for dogs. I think cats are interestingly quite maligned in our culture. Um, It's actually interesting how many people say, I hate cats. Um, That's kind of socially acceptable to say, but it's really not socially acceptable to say, I hate dogs. And so it's one of these things where I think that if we look a little bit more closely, we can find lots of examples of not just cats um, helping and healing, but I would argue that in, in my last book, which you were a part of, which is Heart Cell Connections, how animals and people help one another. There are quite a few examples of other species, even llamas, helping people. Um, and so I think healing can occur through lots of different uh, creatures, not just cats and dogs. But yes, I think that now it would be a more balanced view of uh, including more cats in that book, for sure. So it's only recently that we began to understand the anatomy of how cats purr, how they do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is even recent uh, as to we understand the larynx vibrates and then sometimes it's loud enough where we hear the vibration, essentially. Uh, we can mm-hmm. feel it even if we can't hear the cat purr. Some people say, well, my cat never purrs. Well, if you pet the cat, you could sometimes feel that they're purring, right. particularly if you pet them under their throat, which cats incidentally like. Uh, mm-hmm. So we still don't know exactly. We know, we think. They purr when they're contented. We know any veterinarian will tell you uh, that oftentimes cats purr when they're euthanized. They purr when they're in pain. Uh, They purr sometimes in the middle of the night when they're sleeping, presumably in relation to a dream. They sometimes purr when they're eating. If I could purr, I would purr when I'm eating uh, because that makes makes me happy. Uh, So we, we still don't know exactly the benefit to cats, and it's thought that there's a benefit to people as well. So do you have any opinions as to what you think the benefit to cats may be and also if there's a relationship with us there as well? I think it's a form of communication, actually, and I think it's a an interesting way of connecting the human and the cat. Uh, in the book, I mentioned uh, an example of the man who had a very terrible staph infection and ended up going into the hospital, they almost amputated his leg. And interestingly, the cat would purr right near his wound. Hmm. And he wondered whether, you know, because cats sometimes purr when they're in pain, whether that was an effort to kind of help him address his tremendous pain. 
that the cat may have been feeling it. I don't know, and he doesn't know. Um, but I do think that, yeah, purring is one of those things that we share. Uh, I have the sense that when my cat purrs, that she's actually very happy, uh, that she's kind of communicating that to me, um, you know. But I've also had a situation where a cat was in pain and was purring. But I do think it's a it's a some reaction to the person in the situation, and frankly, it's a form of connection. Well, in cats, we believe in part it's a self-soothing mechanism mm-hmm. also. So if that's the case... For cats, I'm purring not because a human is here, but to help me feel better, if you will. Mm -hmm. I'm anthropomorphizing based on what little we know about it. I, I, I wonder, though, if at the same time that whether the cat intentionally intends to do it or not, but us petting purring cats is soothing to us. And extremely, yeah, yeah. Do you think the answer? Apparently, you think the answer is yes. Absolutely. Oh, I think it's a very soothing thing. Well, it's 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 a regular vibration, which is a soothing thing. Um, so yes, and it's it's a calming uh, sound. That I think it's calming both the cat, but I think it calms the person as well. So yes, I think it's incredibly. And I think petting a cat, whether it's purring or not, you know, a lot of scientific evidence shows that that's very good for your health, and it's a very calming, relaxing activity. So good for the cat and good for you. So is your next book going to be called The Heck With Yoga, Just Get a Cat? (laughs) I think so. I think (laughs) you heard it here. (laughs) What surprised you the most as you researched this book? I mean, you are already there, an advocate for cats. You're already there. I'm doing this book because I want to point some things out. Having said that, you're a researcher and you did real science, real research here. What surprised you? You know, we asked um, about the level of connection with the cat and the human and the the people who responded to a survey. We had 1,500 Americans who are representatives of the United States respond to a survey about what ways their cat helped them. We found, for example, that um, not surprisingly, they felt that there was a high level of intelligence uh, for the cats that they were with. They felt that there was a tremendous amount of communication between themselves and the cat and that the cat really understood them. When we asked them how the cat had specifically helped them, the number one response was with 72% of respondents saying, the cat made me feel happy. Number two response was, the cat provided me with companionship at 68%. Mm -hmm. And the third one was, he or she loved me unconditionally. 65% of respondents said, that was a way that their cat helped them. So I don't know about you, but anyone who makes me feel happy, provides me with companionship, and loves me unconditionally, that's an amazing creature. You know, I can't help but ask this, and we're just out of, about out of time. So I'll ask it real fast and a yes or no answer here, Anne. Uh, did you find that millennials are more connected? I mean, they're the ones who have made cats Instagram stars. They're the ones who have promoted cat cafes in a way to make them happen. So do you think that millennials are somehow more connected to cats? I think they are. We actually did not look at millennials per se, uh, but I, I do believe that they are possibly more connected to cats for sure. Why do you think that is? I think that they look at the world a little bit differently, actually. Um, and I think that they are uh, kind of doing their own thing, and I think they are uh, not necessarily going to follow the trends in society. Uh, I think they are... I think they are a group that's uh, very thoughtful. Okay, that's your next book, too. 
Uh, and you, you will write a next book, I know, because you have like 800 of them out. This book, <laughs> Heroic, Helpful, and Caring Cats, Felines Who Make a Difference. Dr. Ann Beal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, a conversation with Mark Ayers, Illinois Director of the Humane Society of, of the United States. You will be very surprised, I believe, at what kind of goes on here with live animals. We'll talk about that next. Mark Ayers is the Illinois State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. And boy, you did some amazing things or directed some amazing things last year, which I want to get to, Mark. But I want to talk, you know, we've heard about these wet markets. And that could be where COVID-19 or the uh, SARS coronavirus that causes uh, COVID-19 originated. Uh, We seem unsure about that. If it did happen at the lab, the lab is only across the street, so it may have still mutated there at the wet market. So either way, the wet market was involved. And the first SARS virus several years ago that happily, unlike this one, petered out on its own, that we know began at a wet market. So you corrected me on Facebook, Mark, when I said, ah, we don't have to worry about this stuff here in Illinois. And you said, well, wait a minute. And you showed me pictures and other documentation. But let's first describe what these wet markets are that I'm talking about for people who don't know. Yeah, well, the, the, I call them wildlife markets just because that's kind of what we're seeing, you know, in Wuhan and other parts of China and Asia where, you know, they're, they're selling wildlife, you know, primarily exotic animals alongside other food, typically seafood that's to be consumed you know, for human consumption, and the animals there on site are typically slaughtered, and and that's where I think a lot of the experts are looking to where this COVID nineteen outbreak likely happened. Although, as you mentioned, I think the science is still out on that. But the wildlife markets overseas are are just that they're they're places where animals are sold and slaughtered on site next to other food products that are consumed for human consumption. And, and those those animals are slaughtered for human consumption as well. And the way in which it is done is not, I'm talking about the markets overseas anyway, is not appropriate to uh, hygiene. Uh, and nowhere near, nowhere near good hygiene. It's ripe for illness for the people that work there. Never mind things like the SARS virus, but salmonella and other issues are, are common at these places because there there are no hygiene rules, or apparently there aren't. Yeah, very little. And you're right, it's, it's a perfect breeding ground for all sorts of viruses and bacteria and other pathogens to to manifest themselves. Right. So these markets are common in China. These markets are common in other countries in the Far East as well. It's not only China. And the animals that you speak of, they include Everything, depending on the market, from dogs, you heard me right, although China says they're changing that, to uh, poultry and other farm animals, to endangered species that should never be anywhere near there in the first place, to a variety of different wildlife from uh, bats of various kinds, which is important because bats happen to carry a number of coronaviruses, uh, to all sorts of other animals. You think the animal, and it may be there. Is, is that all correct? 
That's all correct. I mean, literally anything you can think of is usually sold at those wildlife markets that we're talking about overseas. And, and you're right, you know, a lot of those species are imported from parts of Africa. You know, they're certainly endangered or threatened species that are being sold at these markets live for human consumption. All right, so that's the definition of what these markets are that people talk about. They've been in the news. And then I said, well, thank goodness, or something like this, they're in social media uh, where you and I follow one another. And I said something like, uh, I might have been on your page or my page, I don't remember. And I said, well, thank goodness this doesn't happen here. And you wrote very politely, Steve, it kind of does. Uh, So it's not to the extent that we see and they aren't the same hygiene issues, but explain what really does happen in Illinois, in our own state, never mind other states around the country as well. Yeah, it's a very similar type of event, you know, and, and we know them here as SWAT meets. So it, it, we, we know them by a different name, but it's the same type of venue that sells animals uh, at these SWAT meets for human consumption, typically farm animals. But they're still being sold alongside other exotics, primarily reptiles and amphibians that, that are sold as pets at these SWAT meets. And, it's, it's, and the important distinction here is that the, the farm animals being sold for human consumption are not being slaughtered on site. They're not being killed right there at the, site of, at the fairgrounds where it's being hosted. But they are being sold for human consumption and being housed in deplorable awful conditions uh, that the pictures that we've seen, I think, speak for themselves. Animals, you know, packed so tightly in cages and crates uh, and and dog crates. I mean, you would not believe some of the photos we've seen come out of this event in the last couple of years. And we know that when animals are stressed, they are more likely to break with disease. And, And we do know that some of those diseases, when you're in close contact, even with farm animals or production animals, uh, that's a problem for other farm or production animals. So then if two get sick, 22 get sick pretty quickly of that same species. But moreover, potentially, we could see the same, potentially, the same kind of thing happen, even though the hygiene issues aren't nearly as bad. The other issue that worries me is the reptile part of this. When you, it was like selling those slider turtles years ago, and we had an outbreak of salmonella. What was that? Thirty years ago, twenty-five years ago. We're not seeing that as much because the government said don't do that anymore. Well, that could be an issue with reptiles. Never mind the welfare issue for all of these animals, and also selling reptiles as if they are a commodity spontaneously when there's no information about proper care or any of that. So uh, I rattled off. There are probably even more issues than that, for all I know, Mark. Yeah, I mean, because of COVID-19, I think everything at the SWAT meet and others throughout the state and even throughout the country, I think it, 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 it makes us raise an eyebrow about, you know, should these types of events continue going forward? And if they do continue, perhaps they need to be far more regulated by the state or county than they should be, and or as they are now, and and you know what we've seen at the event, at least in Kankakee County, you know the, the photographs really they do speak for themselves. You know we saw there were wire cages of chickens that were, I mean, packed to the brim. They couldn't even turn around. We, we there were some photographs of chickens being thrown into plastic bags, 
you know, and being, you know, brought out to cars, goats being hogtied with wire cables, you know, and I think, Steve, the, the most troubling thing that we saw out of there was back in 2018, where there was a video shot of a young calf was hogtied and put into the trunk of a car. What? And we don't know where that calf was traveling to. We don't know how far in the trunk it was, was in there. You know, it could have been there for hours. It could be in that trunk for, for many hours or days. And when you sell those types of animals stressed out like that, yes, next to reptiles, pythons, boa constrictors that are, that are just housed in little plastic Tupperware containers, the whole thing is very suspect. And should those types of events continue in the wake of COVID-19? Well, I would hope not. Are you going to be working on saying these events should be stopped or at least let's have some common sense restrictions here? Yeah, I mean, preferably I would like to see them stopped. But if if we can't see them stopped, then at least start seeing far more regulations at these types of events. I I do want to give some credit to the county in Kentucky because they did in 2018, you know, ban the sale of dogs, cats and rabbits at the swap meet. And But I, I think there is some ability to go forward to ban the, the sale of other animals at those swap meets. But the problem that we're seeing in this county is that the county says they don't have the authority to ban the other sale of those animals. It's up to the state. But then the Department of Agriculture has told me that the county does have the authority to ban the sale of those animals. So you've got kind of both actors pointing at each other, mm-hmm. saying they have the authority. And that's where we're at today with it is is no one knows who has the authority to do what all right well uh, mark will continue to follow this story that's for sure and i thank you very much for all the good work you have done and continue to do in illinois thanks mark appreciate it thank you steve next on wgn eels sticking their necks out in japan so being closed down now for a few months aquariums and zoos all over the world have had this unique issue uh, captive animals have become used to us seeing funny looking people point at them, make funny faces, make funny sounds, right? And they become sensitized over a period of time to all these people pointing and gawking at them. But not anymore because there aren't any people around at zoos and aquariums to do that, to make those funny faces, right? So how do the keepers check on the animals? And in Japan, they had a problem. They're called garden eels, and they, they look like what you think of when you think of an eel, or they actually look more like snakes, really, and, and they hide in the sand. And the keepers would walk by, and they're not used to people, and they'd go right in the sand. And the keepers cannot check. There's like 35, maybe, in the exhibit, and keepers can't check on what they cannot see. So how do they do that? So they had a brilliant idea. They put up video monitors... Uh, facing those eels, and they had people FaceTime the eels from their homes in Japan. And, of course, people being people made funny faces, funny sounds, talked to them, and the eels became, again, accustomed to people. It's crazy, but I think it is absolutely brilliant. I'll tell you, when it's time and the time is right and you feel comfortable, support your local zoos and also the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. We have two great zoos, Brookfield Zoo, Lincoln Park Zoo, uh, also the Milwaukee Zoo, if you live up more in that direction. They need your support. I mean, the animals need to be fed. They've Luckily, these are large zoos, 
and their organized zoos. What I'm worried about are those, if you saw the Lion King, those types of places where the animals, unfortunately, are kept in conditions that aren't the best in the first place. But secondly, they don't have a cash reserve. So those places, I, you know, they didn't do so well through all of this, and they're not doing well. And some of them, I don't know. I mean, horrible things have happened to animals all over the globe because zoos have had to do what they've had to do. If you call them zoos, I call them menageries. They're not really zoos. They're not accredited anyway. But when things do get back, there are all kinds of things that you can do that you benefit by, by supporting the zoo. They have all sorts of events that are fun for the kids. Kids have a great time there. So when you feel comfortable, when the time is right, I do hope you go back to the zoos. I do hope you go back to the Shedd Aquarium also. Next week on the show, we talk about, well, now what happens? The weather is getting nicer. We're getting outside more. Let's keep our pets safe, right? Dr. Heather Lenzer will be here to tell us how.